think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 97 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 98th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I'm Ethan Redville. Uh, and uh, Etienne now uh, has an improved microphone. Well, uh, just a different microphone, really. Well, yeah. I, th- I think the sound quality is a little crisper from what I heard in our little quick little sound check. Uh, this is one of the, the side benefits of uh, having a home office that is gradually being upgraded. Yes. I've, uh, you know, you can only take so many conference calls over your uh, your phone. Yes. And the worst part is on the phone when you uh, forget to turn the Wi-Fi on and then you take conference calls and you somehow eat up your entire data plan while being at home all month is, uh, you know, it's really a treat. Yeah, not not so good. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been a busy couple of weeks since we had our last episode. Uh, we've got a throne speech coming in uh, three days. We're recording this Sunday afternoon um, and the throne speech is coming Having Wednesday. just having just watched Cuties, and we're going to uh, <laughs> oh god, I forgot about that entire news. Cycle. Give an hour of analysis. <laughs> yes. No. Uh, well, instead of talking about well, first of all, uh, it, uh, many of our listeners are in Ottawa. Not not all of you, of course, but uh, Ottawa listeners will of course notice yeah, that Cu- Cuties is available nationwide. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Uh, Ottawa listeners will have noticed that um, Ottawa's chief public health officer, uh, Dr. Vera Etches, came out the other day and said that Ottawa is in its second wave of COVID-19. And in fact, to mark the occasion, uh, the leader of the opposition and the leader of the third party uh, both have <laughs> contracted COVID-19. Uh, so all the best to them and their families. Hope they make swift and uh, full recoveries. Um but I think there's been a collective, at least in Ontario and certainly in Ottawa, a bit of a moment this week, this last week, of, of looking at the state of things and kind of thinking like, wait, didn't we like figure this out already? Like it's been six months and we still have these enormous lines and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted to start by talking a little bit about what's going on there. Yeah. So oof, where to begin? Um... The situation in Ottawa, I, I don't know if it's unique in Canada, but it's really bad. Um, I've heard uh, of, pe- I mean, just the other day, people were lining up at like, I think as early as like three or four in the morning. Middle so, of the some, night. Something yeah, appalling. For sure. Yes, <laughs> as if this were the Lion King. Um, and then the center declaring their overcapacity basically as soon as they open because the line composes of more people than they can process throughout the day. And then people, many instances of people waiting in line for basically eight hours, not getting in. And then I guess having to go back the next day. Like it's very obvious this is not a tenable state of affairs in the midst of a pandemic. No, and it. I think if you... So I think there was a bit of, of mocking of... Uh, I'll, I'll take a step back. Aaron O'Toole, who uh, went to go get tested at one of Ottawa's uh, testing centers the other day with his family uh, because of a potential exposure in the in his office, um, spent you know all day uh, at a testing center to be turned away, and eventually got some of the testing that was offered to MPs on the Quebec side of the of the river, uh, which is all fine and dandy. But the issue he flagged is that because of um, Canada's lack of a approved at home rapid test. Yes. Uh, that, you know, no one should be lining up. And people took this as a very creative way to not blame Doug Ford. 
Uh, and I think there is some of that because the province, I think, deserves a fair share of the blame for the situation here. But there is certainly an important element of truth here, which is that we are one of the only G7 countries to not have an approved at-home rapid test. Yes, if not the only one. Uh, I couldn't find a readily available story about the UK. Um, so, yeah, the testing situation breaks down because provincially or... Uh, Yes. Well, locally, it's being administered via the provincial system, right? Yes. But the approval of uh, these tests is done federally through Health Canada. Health Canada holds holds sort of the reins there. The inability of the federal government, or the unwillingness of the federal government, well, Health Canada—that's that's who I'm using as the federal government—to um, approve some of these COVID tests that have been approved in comparable G7 peer countries. Yeah. Um, is really astonishing, and I think it's something we're not talking uh, sure. remotely enough about. Yeah, and I, the stated kind of rationale as it stands right now is concerns about accuracy. So there are really two kinds of tests. There's accurate lab tests and less accurate non-lab tests, yes. basically. So what we've opted for is to, from the beginning of the pandemic, is to lab test people presenting with symptoms. Which creates a bottleneck. Well, when you're doing it for people with symptoms, it it can, but often doesn't. If, you, if you're not telling asymptomatic people to get tested, then, you know, that's a lot of people who aren't getting tested. Sure, but Though, the, the bottleneck in that system, period, before you expand yes. the population and, you know, increase the size of that bottleneck, is that it's lab testing, right? Exactly. It, so it is slow. It is... There's you have a certain to, amount of lab uh, lab space available, yes. labs that can do this type of testing. And so your ability to scale up lab testing is rather limited compared to yes. uh, disposable uh, rapid testing yeah. options. And samples are, have to be collected by people who know what they're doing. And, and transported and, transported. and all the rest so of it. So all that to say that we had a model in Ontario that was based around, and apologies for listeners in other parts of the country, we're just not as familiar with your situation, so you'll have to forgive us for being a little navel-gazing today. Um, but we essentially had a model where, you know, we tested people who were presented with symptoms and then did so with labs with a high degree of accuracy, which is all well and good. But then we moved to a model where as people came back to school, we required negative tests for a much, 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 much broader pool of people and highly predictably uh, very quickly hit the major bottlenecks we just described in lab testing capacity. Yes. Basically, t like the, the model we had worked for non-mass testing, but then we required mass testing without moving to a model of tests that could actually sustain it. Uh, just to put one caveat in, it, didn't, it wasn't really working particularly well beforehand either. Um, the the back to school has really exacerbated the situation. Yeah, and, and who could who could blame um, all levels of government for not being aware that school starts <laughs> in September in this country? But even in advance of that, uh, my partner went to get tested in I want to say July. It was like July, I think. Yeah. Um, and we went to Brewer Park, which is sort of the main testing uh, place here. Dropped her off, and then I started driving home. Um, well, at first I thought it was going to be a drive-in. I thought we were going to show up and, you know, zippy zoo, we're in and we're out. No, wasn't a drive-in. She hops out of the car. Um, she goes, texts me, says, oh, it's a four-hour wait. I was like, oh, okay, well, I'll leave you here and message me and I'll come pick you up. Um, she decided to not wait, heard that there was another testing center 
um, just really down the road here. Um, so we went to that one instead, and she waited in line there for two hours or yes. something, something like that. Um, so the wait, a four-hour wait is already incredibly problematic. It's a, it's a half work day, right? Um, and with your with your getting there and coming back, like it's yeah. Like, but but then when it comes to return to school, yes, return to work, sec- lining up with the second wave, all of these things, it, it really creates the perfect storm where you now have multi-day waits yes uh i don't know how long you have to wait to get your results whether or not the, there's still a backlog on that end you're not I getting your the results. number i saw yesterday was the, it's a backlog of about forty thousand tests yeah so you're not getting 24 hour results you're maybe getting 48 hour 72 hour results uh, we have to be wondering whether or not this is yes how how effective this system is period but yeah. it's also worth mentioning that Getting t- uh, tested immediately after exposure is not necessarily the advisable course of action. Um, a lot of places recommend like you wait a certain period, you take multiple tests, things along those lines. Yes, virtually impossible with the system we have yes. today. Well, and that's the key with it. And I think probably a lot of people listening to this when I said less accurate tests is like, but don't you want an accurate test? And yes, you do. That that would be optimal if we could have a perfect test that gives you accurate results that you can take at home. Uh, that gives you instant results. That would be obviously fantastic, and we would we would love to have that. But the trade-off is that you have a slightly less accurate test. But how you compensate for that is volume. You just do more of them more often. Yes. Um, like if you you know if if there's a one in twenty chance that you get a a false negative or false positive, uh, the chance of having two in a row is a lot less. Yes. So. That's sort of the idea with that. So the the problem the problem of inaccurate testing, in my understanding, is not really the false negative. It's the number of false positives yes. that it generates. Um, but number one, if the false po- if the false positive leads people to take more well, that's the antisocial, thing, is that, yeah, more the, preventative the measures, the false positive, in a sense, is a much more easily solved problem while waiting for a yes. second test or a laboratory confirmation or something exactly. like that fine yeah what, that's whatever good. that's <laughs> good <laughs> like that's that's totally fine like the app is doing exactly that right yeah. like the app is telling people you've been exposed we don't know if you have COVID or not please go get tested please take preventative measures yeah so if a false positive has roughly that same impact what of it if it's substantially ameliorating yeah. the testing situation. A, a false negative, on the other hand, else. is substantially more genuinely problematic. problematic. Yes. Yeah. But that's why, you know, I think if we had... any Anyway, I don't want to zoom too far into what we should be doing. I, I think we can take it as read that the Ontario government has mismanaged serious elements of this in the sense that, like, these were predictable problems. And, like, we will address the federal side of this in a minute. But, like, this was this this was the army they had for this particular war. And they knew that six months ago, and they knew that three months ago, and they knew that last month. And yet still, there doesn't really seem to have been a real plan to deal with the obvious logistical problems that would arise with requiring what is effectively mass testing without the infrastructure to handle it. So I think we'll just lodge that away, because I I don't think the provincial government deserves to escape uh, a serious, a serious, you know share of the blame here sure but we tend to talk more about federal politics and we want to talk about i think the federal side of things is a little more interesting in some ways so 
Health and Canada it's the here. Side that's covered a lot less. Absolutely, right? it's, it's yes. It's a lot easier for. Well, when people dismissed what Aaron O'Toole said about, you know, well, Health Canada hasn't approved this, with a sort of like, oh, I didn't realize Justin Trudeau was Premier of Ontario, and it's like it's it, it is very easy, and, and like you know, you get a good dunk on for saying that kind of thing. Fair enough. But, like, ultimately, there is a federal responsibility here, and it's just not really being looked at. Like, I think no one is really asking very, very, like, closely and and talking to the people about this. I I have filed some ATIPs about this, but we'll see if I ever get them. Uh, About, like, well, okay, so why don't we have rapid tests that other countries that That, have comparable standards That is the question that no one knows the answer to outside of a small quarter in the government. Yes, and I think... um, And, And it's stunning. It, it, it is. really is stunning that we are literally months behind peer countries, months and months behind peer countries in terms of approving these things. Um, these are, you know, a vital link in the healthcare chain right yes. now that we absolutely just do not have. Well, it, and the only public answer we have is, oh, we have concerns about accuracy. Yes, which is not really a sufficient response. Like, I think in this situation, when we are so far behind, it really behooves the government to just be very clear about what the actual concerns are. But that is not how government is done in this country by any party. I just want to throw that out there. Like, it's yeah. not, it's just there's a, in the federal government, there's a culture of, uh, you know, of need to know when it comes to this kind of stuff, where there's a real reticence to share more information than they feel is strictly necessary. The idea that we're in a, you know, six months into a global pandemic, one of the primary diagnostic tools available to many other countries is not available in Canada, and we do not know why. And it is very interesting because early on, there was a big push for a Canadian one. You'll recall Spartan Biosciences was was really uh, hyped up as like having a a test that was going to come any minute now. Uh, In Ontario, I think I had also said, you know, we're going to have this great test very soon. And then I think there was some scientific issue or technological issue with the test, and it never got rolled out. But then we just never really talked about the problem again. And it's still here. And it's still here. So I don't know if there's a sort of like attempt to develop a made in Canada test, but I don't really see what the point is at this point. Like, uh, you know, we we don't have an answer. No, yeah, that's not an answer. It is really baffling. Yeah. And, you know, if the months continue to tick by, like, I don't I don't know enough about the testing um the the rapid test to say that they're they're going to be able to improve their accuracy to get to the point where health canada is willing to accept them. and at some point it doesn't matter but just improve scale there is <laughs> yeah, there is a very real question about whether or not health canada is going to bend to this yes and if they do bend the question is why didn't they bend earlier much much yeah, earlier when it mattered the lesson of the global <laughs> pandemic is that you can't let perfect be the enemy of the good at every and, step and of the, the way yes and the problem i think we've seen with health canada with masks with well, in response, in some fairness, borders, there is with... a sharing here between Health Canada and between the public health agency. Sure, which we shouldn't equate. Sure, absolutely. Um, but the the but problem in the federal government pattern. and the federal government sort of health apparatus, I think, has been under normal circumstances, perfect is the or you you let perfect be the enemy of the good. Yeah, with your standards for medication in because, Canada, better is you, always possible because you want to approve uh, medication that is going to do no harm. Yeah. However, when it comes to things like vaccines, mask wearing, hand washing, whatever the precautionary measure is, you cannot let that happen in a global pandemic because the 
risk is much greater in terms of doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I mean, the mask thing, I think, is really the emblematic one where there was... And, and I think there was a bit of well-intentioned, though I think profoundly misguided, oh, like, we'll cause a run on medical supplies if we recommend everyone get it. And I, I just said, well-intentioned, but ultimately, yeah. I think, misguided. Because I think what it did was, A, make the pandemic worse in critical early stages, and B fundamentally undermine people's confidence in what public health is telling them because if you can't trust public health to actually tell you what is good for you like what is genuinely good for your health and instead say what is politically and logistically convenient for the federal government then what confidence can you really have right it's a big problem at that point let's just talk about mask wearing for a second because i mean we have some personal history in this conversation indeed yes um what's her what's the name of the uh the liberal mp who played rogue on x-men uh, Lenore Zan. Series. Yeah, Lenore Zan. Zan or Zan? Zan. Zan. Lenore Zan went on uh, Evan Solomon's show on CTV. Back in like April? Like even before then? Uh, no, it was before April because it was before, before we, all went we home. did anything. Yeah. <laughs> it was before March 13th, right? Uh, being the sort of infamous day. Um, she went, I, I, she might have been a parliamentary secretary. I can't quite remember where her position was. But anyway, she was put on one of these panel shows. And uh, Evan Solomon asked her about what precautions she took while going through uh, an airport. And she, she basically tells people, wear a mask. And Evan has it as his sort of sort of trademark. Evan his Solomon trademark shocked face. Yeah. Gotcha moment. He yeah. says, well, mask wearing, you know, that's contradictory. Are you, you know, contradictory to the federal government's public health advice? Are you, are you contradicting the chief public health officer? And she sort of just like folds under the scrutiny there because, you know, you're a rookie MP. You're, so she, you're, she was a longtime uh, provincial legislator. Sure. Um, She's not new to politics. Yeah, but you're sort of caught in this moment and you sort of, she sort of demurs, but like any reasonable person, I think, can, could even then look at mask wearing and say like, this is a respiratory illness. Like, if I wear a mask, it covers my face, my sneezes, my cough, whatever it is. The, the particles get ejected much shorter period. Why is this bad? And the only reason anyone seemed to be able to tell um, that it's bad is because people might touch yes. the outside of the mask. And, and tellingly, that but was... If, but if you're not wearing a mask, yeah. you're still going to touch your face, yes. right? Though you were discouraged from doing so. It's sort of like this ER standard of like, you're going into the surgical operating room. And yeah. I feel like a lot of advice from like ER doctors has sort of bled into the mainstream where there's been all sorts of anecdotes of like doctors in parking lots being like, ah, you're removing your gloves incorrectly. Here is the ER procedure to remove your plastic gloves. Ah, you must remove the mask like this and put it down and you can't wear your mask around your neck. And like all of these other things that yeah. are like the rigor of the emergency room or yes, the rigor like not, of the you, operating room. Sepsis is not a real live risk here for most people. <laughs> Where it turns out, you know, simply wearing cloth something over your face really and combining it with moderate amount of hand washing is like a huge step in the right direction. Yes. And we let ourselves be bamboozled by that. Yes. It, it turns out that like, if you take the, the famous 80-20 rule, if you can get... 20% of people to do an 80% kind of thing that is strictly much worse in the situation getting 80% of people to do a 20% thing. Like yes. it's just you want more people to do the lower lift and that's just going to be better in well, like 90% of circumstances. 
So, so masks were sort of, I mean, there were, there were a number of things along the way. Masks was one of the first ones. That was really the big flashpoint because I think that's where they lost a lot of people's confidence. Yes. Yeah. But before that, there was border. Yeah. Um, how the border was closed, what type of procedure uh, people had to submit to upon yes. returning to Canada. That, I think, was fumbled dramatically. Yes. Um, we've infamously referred to uh, the mayor of Montreal's comments about uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau being a sieve. Um, the airport, not the person, to be clear. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, in the early days. Um, and there was also sort of the public forewarning. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That, I mean, like, when we've talked at length about, like, how did we get caught with our pants down or on our ankles so thoroughly here. So we've done all of these things, and we've we fumbled this along the way, um, at, at each point along the way. Yes. And it seems like rapid testing is really the next one. Of, and, or and, it, and it, it's ongoing, but it's really the next it, one. To me, it was extremely ominous. I was reading a CBC article about uh, some comments from Health Canada about rapid testing where they said, oh, well, we're worried people will misuse them at home or misinterpret the results. And it's like, we've been down this road at least four times now during this pandemic. And every single time, it's just turned out to be better to just trust people. It's almost like there is a concentrated <laughs> paternalistic culture of paternalistic and... decision makers um, who are having to relive the same thing every two months. But this time, our noblesse oblige will get it right. Yeah, for it's some just reason. brutal. It's really hard to watch. And the the people taking most of the hits in terms of testing are the provincial governments yes. because I mean, look, it's, it's like, easy to correlate the long line to yeah, hundred percent. The provincial government not doing X, Y, Z. And I think that, but, that, but that the reality blame is, is yeah. that this is the, you know, the relief valve for yeah. a lot of that. And so long as we're welding that relief valve closed. Yes. Oof, well, it's like it the, the strategy they tried to do provincially would not work with the tools they had. I think, and that's their fault for insisting on doing that. Um, and like, I think they've, they've executed the, the, the details badly, right? Like, and I think with school reopening, there was just so, like, so late in the game with what was going to happen and mixed messages and all yeah. this stuff. And like, I, I just, like, I, I want no one to take away that we are letting the provincial government off the hook here by any means because it, they have been really bad. <laughs> and I think they, I think a lot of, like, it's kind of crazy to me that in March and April, Everyone is extremely clear that, like, there will be a second wave in the fall. And everyone, you know, took the, the newspaper articles from, you know, uh, the U.S. from the the, the um, Spanish flu pandemic in, in 1918. Mm, yes. And, and we're like, look, like... Second this, wave killed more people than the first blah, wave. Blah, 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 all this stuff. And everyone was super clear about it. And then summer happened and everyone went to their cottages. And we had the, the bubbles that, like, people stopped respecting after about two weeks, for the most part. If that. If that. Uh, and now it's like everyone's really surprised that we're having a second wave. And it's like, and, and I want to be clear that I don't really begrudge people enjoying their summer because the fact is that in the vast majority of places, case counts were super low to non-existent, especially if you weren't in a large metropolitan area. And like, there was very, there was no harm, really. Like, if you're in a place with, with no cases, like, live your life, you know, like take reasonable precautions, but live your life. So I, I don't begrudge people enjoying their summer, and I think it would have it would have been just morale breaking to not let people do that. Oh, of course. But like we needed to be ready to snap back. Like there was a lot of talk about being ready to snap back when sort of like stage stages were set out at, in various provinces, but no one really seems to have the political will to be like, okay, this is actually the point where we need to snap back a little bit here. So like, New Brunswick, it's crazy. New Brunswick is interesting in this regard because it's the only um, provincial health plan that I'm aware of. 
that included specific terms for snapbacks. Yeah. Um, which was, I'm trying to remember the specifics of it, like four unrelated ca- cases in a 48-hour period or, yeah. or something along those lines. And they did have snapbacks. Yeah. Um, and people they, bore, and people dealt with it and rewarded the government just this last week with a majority <laughs> mandate. So, um, <laughs> But none of, a lot of the other provincial health plans, you know, alluded to the ability to snap back things. Yes. Doug Ford this week snapped back um, some measures, uh, reducing the indoor, yeah. outdoor uh, gathering limits. Yes. Um, but that wasn't based on a formula, right? That was sort of just based on like, People being oh, mad at him. things are getting <laughs> <Yes>. bad. <laughs> it wasn't, you know, here are our metrics for snapback based on what models say about spread. No, it's it's been very ad hoc. Uh, for once again, it's like, there's really no excuse. Like, we knew this was coming. It was very clear. I feel like the, the government was not... It's strangely just totally unprepared for, like, once again, it's like school reopening. It's like school starts in September every year. It's not a mystery to policymakers that, like, they're going to have to figure this out. And yet they, they didn't. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, like, people deserve an answer as to why that was. And it's the same thing with second wave. It's like, okay, we knew that was going to happen. Why weren't you re- more ready for this? So just to bridge back to the, uh, the rapid testing. Yes. Um, for a moment. At the start of the pandemic, or fairly early on, there was some buzz about, uh, you know, why isn't rapid testing being approved by Health Canada? And Jason Kenney went out and said, you know, Alberta will, uh, he made a decree or an executive order or whatever the hell it's called in Alberta, um, that Alberta's provincial health authorities would be empowered to use um, pure country approved tests and I, I think drugs and a lot of people sort of got hung up on like well and if, if you read the cbc article they interview like university of alberta law professor and people in the space and they sort of get stuck in the rut of being like well alberta has no domestic approval uh body, processor capacity yeah. capacity etc um so how would this even work in practice it's like they just look at a list of stuff that is France approved or Germany, Germany has approved yeah. and, say, and say okay that <laughs> we'll take a thousand of those to go please yeah um and everyone sort of thought this was radical and like oh my gosh he's pushing back on these areas of federal accountability or these you know this is long held to be the federal jurisdiction yes and I don't know that they've ever actually done it to any significant extent. Um, in relation, it doesn't seem like in it, relation yeah. to COVID stuff. Like we haven't heard about Alberta widely deploying um, rapid COVID testing to great success. Um, but just to say, everyone thought this was outrageous. Um, and now looking back on it, that actually seems like the very rational position is just accepting peer countries. Yeah, I think what happened and why they didn't go further with it is because a, a big crate of rats tried to smuggle itself <laughs> into Alberta to finally, finally get at it and get, yeah, priority, all, the delicious, get all the delicious wheat so they couldn't risk uh, the possibility of uh, the rats coming back in. Yeah, that's fair. And like, yeah, just in retrospect, it seems sort of ridiculous that Health Canada has not approved any of these things. That I, I'd love to do the, the G20 breakdown to see like where we are truly as the laggards of the world in terms yes. of approving some of these tests. And why the hell do we think we're better than everyone else? Well, and yes, I think and like, spoiler, so, so spoiler, the reason we think we're better so than everyone much else of it is the U.S. is because our direct competitor is the United States. Yes. 90% of our news that is not Canadian news is, you know, the Donald Trump Cheeto feed. 
Um, <laughs> but again, there's a dang Cheeto in the White House. <laughs> and everyone gets hung up on that and thinks we're doing an absolutely phenomenal job. The reviews of, uh, you know, the federal government's actions early on were always correlated against those of the United States. Yes. Or oh, always, and, uh, speaking, always speaking of reviews, the by the way, Health Canada started an internal review of the federal government's response to the pandemic this last week. And uh, so, what does that remind you of in terms of <laughs> reviews the government has had to walk back you know, oh, weeks my later? God. Uh, oh, and also, also worth mentioning is the president of the public health agency resigned this week as well. Yes, although there isn't a ton of information or even rumor or speculation. No, no, that no. I, anything uh, aside uh, from just burnout? I legitimate. Is... I would imagine. Like, I think everyone in politics these days. Uh, is to some extent burnt out, and I would imagine that, that the brunt has fallen particularly hard yes. on the executive of the public health agency. Um, but it makes for so. you know an awkward moment, a moment of transition in the midst of a global pandemic, especially where... right at the beginning, like perhaps leaving in like mid July, you know, to give when time the for calm like, before yeah, the storm, rather right? than. But yeah, we we don't but, have any eyes into what transition exactly. So no uh, idea. What, speculating here? What? Uh, yeah, I mean that very well may have been the case. Yeah. No, I, 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 I just I can believe it now. And yeah, number two is strapped and ready to step into that job yeah. and to not approve health tests. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, not their job. I know, I know. It's good. <laughs> um, but no, I, I think it really would be very good for a, a Canadians and Canadian I would media love an to take a response, broader to perspective, a very articulate and technical response as yeah. to what exactly the issues are with this testing and how we're comparing that against yeah, and like, potential benefits. Exactly. Like, it just seems And if crazy the answer me. is, well, we're using a standard that was developed in 1995 under these conditions and it still hasn't passed that threshold, then it really is a moment for political leadership to yes. step up and say, no, throw out that book. Yes. And we've... Get this goddamn thing We've approved. said this before... I think one hallmark of the federal government's response to the pandemic has been excessive deference to public health experts, where sometimes, like, they will give you their best technical advice and knowledge, and sometimes you need to say, that's all well and good, but a 100% solution six months from now does us very little good, and I'd rather have a 60% solution today. Yes. Like, it just, in a pandemic, it, I really do think they, they, they have a brand to, to live up to in terms of, you know, the party of evidence and science, except for when the prime minister uses uh, <laughs> cupping. cupping to uh, do I don't even know what. Um, to correct his blood. I to, knows. to bring blood to muscles to promote healing, I think is the... Very good. The uh, layman's pseudoscience explanation of what cupping is supposed to do. Very good. Uh, but at any rate, yes, it is a bit baffling that... Uh, also, chiropractors, total scam. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think that that about covers us off on the pandemic side of things. Um, so you wanted to talk about uh, the new conservative shadow cabinet. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a few weeks um, since we've recorded a podcast. We're about to go into a very busy fall session with a lot of, you know, major things coming up. Um, first and foremost, the speech from the throne. Um, and then some sort of mini-budget economic statement in October or November. Whatever legislation this government is going to introduce, we have no idea whether or not... I mean, so there was a readout from Aaron O'Toole's call with uh, uh, the Prime Minister in which 
the O'Toole team laid out some of what they discussed and sort of what where the prime minister tipped his hat in terms of legislative priorities, including like medical assistance in dying, which is sort of following a court. Uh, Tip, tipped his hand. What did I say? Tipped his hat? Yes, that's a little <laughs> different. My lady. Tips fedora. <laughs> um, tipped his hand being a card game reference, turns out. Um, yeah, of all the things I would expect you to get right. No, no consistency. <laughs> Um, medical insistence and dying. So it'll, it'll be interesting to watch a return to normal legislating um, with some of these priorities that have been building up that are not strictly COVID priorities, which is what basically all the legislation has been yes. um, in the last little while. Um, but all of that is neither here nor there because we're going to talk about the Shadow Cabinet. Yes. Um, so the O'Toole team got off the ground um, incredibly quickly, I, I think. Um, O'Toole very quickly put his people into positions in the party um, and began staffing up his OLO. And the first announcement was actually the House leadership team, um, where Candace Bergen got deputy leader of the opposition. Uh, Richard Martel, uh, Quebec's favorite hockey coach, um, became the, the Quebec political lieutenant or lieutenant. I like. I think I, I lieutenant hate, is technically how I, we say it here, but I, I've always I said that. lieutenant. I hate yeah. that so much. Lieutenant. Just read it the way it's spelled. Um, and and it, of greater irritation to me is the fact that it, it is literally just a French phrase of someone who holds the place, the lieutenant. But for some reason, British people were like, "Yeah, there's an F in there," which once again, <laughs> my my belief that the the British just really have it coming. Uh, Gerard Deltel got house leader. Gerard Deltel used to be the house leader, I believe, for the. Uh, it's not the CAC. Well, it's he was the, he was the leader leader of the um, Action Democratique du Québec. The and, then, and then he was house leader for the CAC? Correct. Okay, that's what it is. Yeah, after they merged, yeah. Um, Blake Richards, who is a uh, Banff Airdrie. Yes. Um, as chief opposition whip, little in the weeds position. Uh, Alex Ruff, who has a great name um, and a beard <laughs> to match, as deputy opposition whip. Um, a lot of these folks are... There's, you know, there's a regional balance there. Like, there's a regional sure. balance. There's a few surprises, or there's a few new faces, I'll say, not surprises. Um, but then there's sort of your trusty people who are prominent in the, the sheer leadership team, uh, Candace Bergen and Gerard Deltel among them. Yeah, the Alain Reyes not being on yeah. the, the, the front bench there is a bit of a difference. And some hay was made around that, yeah. but, you know, Richard Martel is a new up-and-comer, uh, very charismatic uh, a hockey coach who led his hockey team to many great victories. And I know nothing about he hockey. Won, uh, he won a by-election in Chicoutimi uh, during the last parliament, which was a, a very contentious four-way The Conservatives race. put a lot of yeah. um, effort into winning that by-election. They did, yes. And then Richard Martel was one of the speakers at the uh, Conservative uh, Policy Convention in Halifax that year. Mm -hmm. um, so he, he's sort of been an up-and-comer um, from his hockey background. And then... The, so the first thing to note about the shadow cabinet, and this is where sort of more interesting bits of analysis are. Um, one, we're sticking with Andrew Shear's rebranding um, of shadow cabinet of yeah. shadow cabinet and shadow ministers rather than critics, which is much to my chagrin because it looks really stupid when you're writing a briefing note and you say like the NDP critic on housing and the conservative shadow minister for housing. It just doesn't make any sense mm -hmm. to anyone who's not following these things. Um, so. Broadly, what I would say is a lot of people looked at the, the shadow cabinet lineup and saw Michelle Rempel and uh, Pierre Paulia front and center and thought sort of same old, same old. Um, where I think 
that's not really the case. I think if you start to peel the onion a little bit deeper, you go one layer past sort of the, the frontest of the front bench, um, what you see is a lot of new faces, sort of a yep. generational shift um, that I would say is similar to the type of generational shift that the liberals went through when the prime minister uh, was elected and sort of made his cabinet, right? You had one or two of the, uh, the well-established figures, um, but a lot of other people uh, it, it was a you know a complete sea change. The best example I can give is the agriculture critic, um, which isn't going to mean much to that many people. But John Barlow is a man who lives and breathes agriculture. Um, his EDA gives out really good beef jerky. Yes, Foothill, um, Foothills, which is one of it is perhaps the most conservative heartland seat there is. And I'm trying to find her because she's not an MP I'm particularly familiar with. Um, but the MP stepping into that role is a, I believe, like 34-year-old young woman. Which Leanne Rude. Or oh, okay. Rod? R-O-O-D. I'm not I would say quite Rude, sure how but to pronounce who knows? it. Um, who, former staffer, 34-year-old farmer, things along those lines. In a politics, you know, the Canadian system is not as seniority-driven as the American system is. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, the agriculture portfolio is one of these that tends to cement people into place. Lawrence McCauley, for instance, um, or Jerry Ritz. You know, people, yeah. sort of like the old-timey farmer guy, gets into that portfolio and never leaves. And here we're seeing, you know, not, not that John Barlow was quite as old-timey farmer um, as Jerry Ritz or... Um, no, and he's, he's not an old guy either. No, yeah. but he is someone who's getting removed from that portfolio to allow a fresh 34-year-old to stretch her legs and, you know, yeah. ma make a shot of it. Uh, I, I think of note especially is the new question period coordinator, who is the Conservative Party's, I believe, first openly gay elected MP. That is correct. Yes, um, which is, and I was, I remember expressing some surprise after the election that he had not made shadow cabinet because it would send such a powerful message for the conservative Andrew Shears Conservative Party. Yeah. And it seems very telling that they did not do that and that Aaron O'Toole has. That was that was very much noted. Yes. Um, was that Eric Duncan did not receive a role in Andrew Shears Shadow Cabinet. Mm -hmm. Um and I think confused or not not confused people, but you know, it, it did not go unnoticed. Mm -hmm. And so Eric Duncan was in the House Leadership Announcement for right off the bat, right? Yes. Although the position It's fairly junior. Which is yeah. question period coordinator is not necessarily the, uh, you know, it's, it's not a role every party has. Um, sometimes it's integrated sort of through the house leader's office. Sometimes it's a staff position, um, but notable that it's there, but it is also a leadership position. Um, just looking through some of the other ones, uh, the other shadow ministers, um, there's a bunch, not many people kept their, uh, kept their positions no and i actually found it's interesting uh you mentioned rempel earlier who has been moved to health yes uh from innovation science blah 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 um which is interesting because clearly they wanted to play more front and center role on asking perhaps the kinds of questions about the deployment rapid testing <laughs> among other things 100 <laughs> percent. yeah she has been put in a position to press the government yeah um which is one that historically she has a track record of doing well um, and getting results on the her time on the uh, the immigration file, most notably for the Yazidis. Yeah, right. Um, she picks an area 
a subsection, a given file under the portfolio and chases it down day in, day out. She's given front row billing in question period. She's given the latitude to do it. And she also has sort of her own uh, base of power, base of influence via social media online. She's one of the most socially, uh, the most engaged um, over Facebook and some of these tools. I, uh, if I were to coin an expression, I'd say you don't know an MP until you follow them on Facebook <laughs> um, or Facebook or social media, period. Um, strongly do recommend that to people. Uh, I don't use Facebook a ton, um, but you really do get a better sense of what an MP cares about, what their personalities are, what they say to their supporters when you follow them on Facebook and Instagram and some of these platforms. I don't know if MPs are still doing Snapchat, but that was a thing very briefly. Um, huge difference. You know, you're getting long form 10 minutes speaking to the camera um, where these people are speaking to their, you know, their political constituency, their base, the regional issues, whatever it is. That's how you really get to know an MP a little deeper than sort of watching them in committee level. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, committee, they're talking for maybe three minutes at a time. Yeah. And okay. You get a, grasp of where they take their questioning and things like that but yeah following an mp on facebook is actually incredibly insightful um so like if you're working in like uh, a particular sector of government relations in ottawa which probably far too many of the people listening to <laughs> um or you want to know your local mp better or any of these things follow them on facebook follow them on instagram follow them on tiktok don't tiktok's bad um what not, if, yeah the key, key one that was not mentioned here of course is twitter because or, twitter is not helpful for anyone at any time <laughs> yeah the, pro the problem with twitter is that it's, uh, it's for the the two percent of, of just like well, brain brain melted political people you who just do get uh, to know people a little better on twitter but like very differently a lot of it's MPs not to their, their staff it's not to their voters a lot right of MPs like have their staff do it and then yeah. it's just partisan jousting yes in a way Pe that people's voters are not on twitter Sure. They are on Facebook. Um, so there was like three people, I think, who kept their uh, their position. Michael Barrett being one of them. Michael Barrett, much younger than he looks. Um, he is in the millennial cohort, um, which I did not know until I looked it up. Oh, geez, yeah. I would um, not have guessed. I think he's 34. I would have put him at least 10 years older. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I put him at a youthful, like, 40-something. Yeah, he, no, yeah. he is in the millennial cohort. Um, that's the other thing to note is that I think everyone in the millennial cohort of conservative MPs got a spot. A lot of them were uh, supporters of O'Toole's um, through the leadership. And then a lot of the MPs that were not included in the list who had been sort of uh, Harper era MPs, some former ministers, things along those lines, notably Ed Fass, for mm -hmm. instance. Um, by and large, they endorsed Peter McKay. Yeah. And a lot of them have found themselves without um, without critic portfolios um, or shadow cabinet <laughs> departments. <laughs> yes. I don't know how you say it. Um, there, there are, which is not to say that there were not uh, Peter McKay endorsers who were included in the leadership team and in the critics, but a lot of sort of the tried and true uh, faces that we'd seen over the past few years have been, have been uh, bumped yeah, for MPs who had been in more of a backseat rule traditionally or some of the fresher faces. Yeah. Um, in terms of fresher faces, I'll, I'll use one as an example here, which is James Cumming, uh, the innovation science and industry guy. Uh, he is a new MP. He first elected in 2019. 
And we don't know much about any of the class of 2019 yet because there's been so the little very, parliament yes. um, between here and there. So I should follow him on Facebook and find out <laughs> what he's... Uh... Yeah, we saw him a little bit in like the um, the Wii hearings a couple of times. Yes. Uh, and he seemed like he, he had a thread and he was going to run with it, which is better than a, a lot of people sometimes <laughs> who don't come into meetings with a strategy and it, it shows. Uh, but yeah, it'll be interesting because yeah, you're right that a lot of these people are, are very much untested uh, because there just has been so little parliament or at least untested from the public point of view. Perhaps they've been very helpful internally, and but we don't really have a window into that. Yeah, like scrolling through the list, there's a bunch of MPs that I'm just whole, wholly unfamiliar with, right? Like Philip Lawrence, National Revenue, never, no idea. Greg McLean, Natural Resources, big portfolio for the conservatives. Don't know much about him. Um, yeah, so I see it as somewhat of a generational change in terms of who is occupying the benches. Um, I, I guess we'd be remiss to say that Andrew Shear got the infrastructure, uh, if, if we missed that Andrew Shear got the infrastructure portfolio, mm -hmm. um, which in a normal time, um, infrastructure, I would argue is sort of a C tier Maybe B, low B. Yeah, I'd call it a B. A low B level. Depends on who's in government. Federal department. Yeah. Um, but you know, you can you can find room to make hay as an opposition critic in infrastructure because there's so much money to scrutinize. Yes. Um, but in this instance, I mean, especially around the time that the shadow cabinet was made, was when the liberals were floating all their trial balloons about the uh, the Green New Deal. I mean, the uh, Build Back Better. Um. But a lot of that seems to have been canned. Yes. Um, so I don't know whether or not Sheer sort of got stuck in a less or has, yeah. now been, has now been positioned in a less prominent portfolio than was intended. Right? Indeed. At the time of his appointment, I think you, it'd be very easy to look at it and say the, the government is about to spend yeah, and it's a, a ton on green infrastructure. Yeah. He is going to be the counterpoint to Catherine McKenna. This is going to be a very prominent role. Yeah. Now, but, then, but and this is worth it. We haven't really talked about this on the show. Is that there's been a, a bit of a, a seeming palace coup uh, around the cabinet table the last couple of weeks, where a lot of the, the very high altitude trial balloons about uh, about how they were going to put all this money into you know building a, a clean green future and all of this uh, have been uh, old yellered pretty. Uh, yeah, pretty so, conclusively. So there's two pieces I would point and to. Christian Freeland saying, I had a great chat with Paul Martin. Really, just like <laughs> put that right on ice. I ha uh, There's two, two media pieces I'd point to that really detail this, uh, this change of pace. Uh, the first is Heather Schofield, uh, Toronto Star. Heather is increasingly the columnist to read in Canada, or one of, like, if yeah, you're, if you're, one going, of a small handful, for if, sure. If you're going to read, you know, for actual, actual insights, day, yes. <laughs> it's probably, you probably couldn't do much worse than reading her piece. Better. Much better. Yes. <laughs> the opposite of that. Yeah. <laughs> you could do much better than reading her piece. But you could do worse. Um, and then the other one, which was sort of a spin-off of her piece, and it's acknowledged in, in sort of the header, is uh, the Paul Wells piece. I, I know we both quite enjoy Paul Wells' writing. Indeed. Um, even though it seems to increasingly be the... Uh, the column that triggers liberals the most it, which uh, there, i do like about it that that is not that is a feature to me indeed uh, I, mean, I, yeah. I also see that as a feature indeed. not a bug yes um so 
let me leave the shadow cabinet discussion there and then let's just talk briefly where we're at 47 approximately lots of time (laughs) Um, just a speech from the throne is coming up yes on wednesday indeed um space-time continuum what what do we have what do we what do you have well, first of all that? we will we will finally be treated to the the vice regal person uh, an appearance in the flesh of the space queen herself she payette uh, if they can find her uh so if, we'll see if they're not afraid to go find her indeed yes um oof that is uh quite a saga but it's an ongoing saga and uh i have not heard anything that would discredit what has been reported in media no i neither am i I, to Um, be fair i i still you know i think we've made it very clear on twitter that uh our official position is uncritical support for the space queen (laughs) and uh we're keeping it that way what was the line she put in the last speech from the throne i don't remember i didn't i i was i was still unemployed at the time so i didn't watch it disappointing yeah i was playing brush in the wild i think something like we're all on a planet going through the space-time conti- i don't i don't remember what it was very good well th- that added a lot of value <laughs> something to look forward to i wonder if she will inject any signature some more space her, her beloved space quotes beam me up scotty i i don't know i don't very know what good. she's queued up this time uh i think so in terms of what people are the throne speech itself like i think we just alluded to the fact or at least the rumor that uh the environment parts of it have been thoroughly woodshedded um but it seems like pharmacare and childcare will be two big components. That's what I've heard. I don't know. You, you're hearing different. Whatever you heard is correct, Laurent. I trust. I trust whatever your source. I think are. your rumor mill is genuinely better than mine. So. Uh, no, I mean, I think so. A ton of things were trial ballooned. Yeah, like. There was, and like, there's always the question of who is trial ballooning them. Is it the minister themselves or is it PMO? Because if it's the minister themselves, it's sort of, uh, hey, yeah, how good would this be? Eh? <laughs> would it be great if my portfolio became more prominent in this? Yes. Um, because the people are responding so positively to all of these things that fisheries you know, and oceans is going to see a big, <laughs> uh, it's a big year for fisheries. Yeah, you know, you always hope. Um, so. Th- there have been tons of things trial ballooned. Yes. Um, the green stuff, uh, sir. Very responsible use of helium, if you ask me. Long term care, healthcare transfers. The uh, the pro the premiers were in Ottawa this week demanding <laughs> dollars and cents. As they do. Uh, they they don't do much else. Um, no, that is of course sarcastic. But yeah, the, the premiers came with a big ask. Yes. A big the health transfer. A huge yeah. ask. Um, which, of course, I think is uh, perhaps a little richer than the federal government is likely to go. The, f- the federal government has been in the position of doing most of the COVID spending nationally. Yes, and and with very good reason. They have the capacity. The provinces have less. The provincial capacity varies fairly dramatically. Yes. Um, but when you're thinking about buffering the low end, you got to remember Newfoundland. Yes. Who is now just telling people publicly that they can't afford things. Yeah, I mean, there was the week Newfoundland went bankrupt and no one noticed, which was really and quite the, something. the Bank of Canada started backstopping yes. their borrowing. But it's worth saying as well that, like, it doesn't, like, just from the point of view of where it makes sense to incur the debt, like, not only is there more capacity on the federal side, uh, there's also just, like, they have the better interest rates. 
So it's just it's it's cheaper for the federal government to take it on compared to anyone else taking it on. Like it's just it just makes sense to do it that way. But there you go. I mean, yes, but the political risk. Well, yes, but this is the this is the problem of like the liberals, I think, from that point of view, made the correct thing and like the correct decision of like we're going to upfront the cost to the federal government because we have the capacity we have the lowest interest rates etc this will be the cheapest for canadians over the long run just true uh and the conservatives are going to say wow what a big deficit and like they were going to do that i think no matter what the size of the deficit was if it's a five billion dollar deficit they will say this will you know drown our children and if it's a hundred billion dollars or two hundred billion dollars they'll say so like well there's a certain amount of, of, of salt to take it with let's um, let's slow down a tiny bit there because i think there is one policy point worth noting before we close out the show sure um how aaron o'toole is positioning himself i think is uh, perhaps a piece we should have added to the agenda on oh on those sort of like on a lot of things yeah. right he went from in the platform having true a blue baby of uh what was it every new spending has to be justified by cutting somewhere else it, yeah they had a zippy name i can't remember what the name was um two a 10-year plan to return to balance which is much softer than what andrew here had run on previously yeah well for leadership yeah yeah but hard to compare to andrew Shear because it's not anticipating all the COVID stuff no no the fiscal situation is very um, different but, but it is yeah. not a it is notably not a we will be back to budget in two years yes. or a bad back but, to, yeah i mean i back think to balance in two years to their credit they've realized that that would be a catastrophic mistake <laughs> so you pair that with um some of the other signals coming out of the O'Toole camp. Um, a lot of people noted the uh, appeals to unions or yeah. union workers. Um, a little bit of a different tone coming from the Conservative Party. Yeah. Um, not, I mean, not so much the, yeah. you know, get enraged, trigger the libs, a little more, you know, you're hurting and I it, understand it, that it, and I feel you. I think European Conservatives have figured out that they can basically govern forever if they just don't sound like maniacs, uh, which is a lesson the North American right, I think, is perhaps in the stages of learning here. I think in the States, perhaps less so. Uh, but, like, you look at Angela Merkel or, you know, the British conservatives, like, and I'll give a little more credit to Angela Merkel here for genuinely being, you know, fairly economically middle of the road. Uh, like, I think that sort of, like, continental Christian Democrat um Tradition is very appealing to many, many voters. Sure. Uh, it actually is the socially liberal, economically uh, conservative thing that people kind of... Actually, no, it's sort of the opposite in a way. It's 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 socially a little eh, but is not as stingy with uh, basic social programs and sort of, you know, shared prosperity kind of being the engine of the economy. Um, though Merkel, I think, has... has been fairly socially liberal for her party uh there are people who are way 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 less socially liberal than her in the cdu and the csu um i think this like, has rapidly become the boys in the, sh the <laughs> boys in short later hosen yeah i was trying to remember yeah. what, what it's called yeah in the later hosen um and yeah boris johnson i mean i like i think i've said this multiple times to multiple people now but if they if the conservatives run the 2019 British conservative campaign, I think they have a very good shot of winning. 
Minus the Brexit, I guess, because uh, I think only Andrew Shearer is, is the only person who still thinks it was cool and a good idea uh, in Canada. But yeah, there you go. I th- yeah, just to close out on this point, because I think we're now... Yes, we're now in, in dangerous, we're, dangerous we're, waters. We're now in time. Um, the direction that O'Toole has gone in, I think, is one that should scare the liberals much, much more than... The Andrew Shear direction. The Andrew Shear like oil and gas um, death cult. Kind it of it seems like Aaron O'Toole. While the Shear team would uh, pay lip service to the the broad and the base theory, um, fundamentally they never ran on anything remotely related to broadening the base. No. Um, whereas that has really been the direction O'Toole is going in very early yes. on. Um, personally as well. Yeah. I think there's always the challenge of breaking the party out of its old habits. Yeah. No, and um, it's, but it's, that, that's why the generational change in yeah. who is composing your shadow cabinet benches, I think is useful in terms yeah. of putting a completely fresh coat of paint on this. Running, thing. running to the broad center for the conservatives right now is a very good idea for just a whole bunch of reasons. Like one, I think people were legitimately like scared of Andrew Shear, like he did not he did nothing to disabuse people of, of that um i think o'toole is being disarming which is i think just like it opens a universe of voters to them it makes the liberals run back to the center uh because i think a lot of which we're watching in real time exactly like with with this sort of like uh them old yellowing a lot of the green stuff that they were going to ostensibly have in the throne speech had to do with like oh we probably need to tackle a little bit to the center and then that actually is good for the NDP as well, which is good for the conservatives. Because, because, <laughs> in, in because a sense. it gives the NDP room to breathe. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's for them strategically very smart to just move the ratchet way back to the center. Yeah, and then you know, which start, makes, start the train chugging along once they're in government. But which will by make, then they're in government, they're laughing for a a very competitive election when it's called next week. <laughs> no, <laughs> it will not happen. <laughs> yeah, we boys in short pants thought uh, is still that. There is no fall election, and it just ain't happening, folks. No. Maybe. And every time you read a column... It's a bored columnist or reporter. It, yes. Yes. Just in, they're in bored. The the dog days of summer will there be an election? election? They, they're no. bored. Stop. They got a file. All right. Uh, that'll do it for us. Uh, you can follow us at ShortPantsPod on Twitter. We'll, uh, we'll do a new episode next week. Yes, later, po- later this week. Yes, post uh, in, post throne speech. In rapid succession with just throne speech analysis. Indeed, speech from the throne analysis and uh, various other SFP, other things. whatever you want to call it. Yes. Well, very good. Mostly looking for which space references will be included. In that that will that will feature very heavily. My uh, my throne speech would include wub dub dub <laughs> <laughs> I have to cut. Okay. All right. Bye, everyone. <laughs>